Alright, just to recap very briefly, we've been asking the question, what is involved, what is necessary, what are the uh, needed ingredients, constituents of a healthy, vital tradition. Uh, and looking, obviously, particularly at Buddha Dharma and also soul-making Dharma, etc., and as part of that unearthing, opening out, um, shining a light on some aspects or constituents that may be less obvious or that some implications of those certain aspects may be less obvious to us. And part of what we... Um, wanted to acknowledge and bring more into consciousness was just how much uh, cultural conditioning uh, plays a part, or cult contemporary cultures, uh, places and histories uh, influence and shape and condition the tradition, the Dharma, uh, the, the, whatever it is at the time in that place. And uh, we also mentioned the the, the, the fact, uh, unavoidable fact, that um, creative mistakes uh, creep in and sometimes can actually be very fertile uh, in what they uh, contribute uh, to, to the tradition, to the Dharma, and how things get built on those mistakes, on the bases of those mistakes. Also, um, opening up, again, the recognition and the, the pondering of the, the fact of the presence and, and maybe the necessity of a certain amount of um, conflict and argument that constitutes the tradition and, and um, shapes the community relations etc., and the relations of ideas within that tradition, and that's part of its life. Uh, and so, with all this, there are, you know, then, then a whole other level of question is how much, how little, what kinds of tensions uh, actually serve a creative function, perhaps even surprisingly, and at what point, or what kinds of tension serve to actually fracture something, um, perhaps uh, irredeemably, to fracture a tradition, to splinter it, to kill it. Uh, so all these factors are part of what, what shape Dharma, the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, a tradition, any tradition. And what are we going to do with that? How does it land with you? How do we orient towards that, relate to it? Where do we move forward in relation to that? And I want to add into that mix, into, into that sort of cauldron of ingredients where considering and acknowledging uh, something I've emphasized many times before, the, the personal inclinations we bring uh, as, as human beings in to our choices, our preferences, our leanings, 
our openness or closeness with respect to this or that that we might hear or read or that's presented to us uh, in, in the Dharma as a practice possibility, as a teaching possibility, as a concept, as a direction, whatever. So personal inclinations, meaning soul styles, wishes, desires, fears, uh, we uh, cannot but bring that and we must acknowledge it, we must be honest about that. There is a certain, uh, not just cultural, but personal element in all this that comes into the equation, comes into the mix, and shapes and directs our choices. Blinkers us, opens opens certain avenues, closes certain avenues, makes uh, certain possibilities just unthinkable or not even noticed. We just don't hear them. We just uh, they just do not register. So in some ways, we choose a dharma. An, an individual chooses a dharma to some extent. To some extent, based on their personal inclinations. And if you like the uh, sum or to- total of the individual choices, will also shape the larger tradition uh, or sub traditions, etc. And so these, uh, the Dharma that we choose, I want this Dharma, I want the tradition to be this, I want to see the tradition to be this, or I choose this kind of Dharma. Um, uh, There, often, the choices and the wishes there are often, and the soul styles are often with regard to uh, the worldview and the view of the human being. The world view and the view of the human being. More than uh, in anything else. What is it that determines these... Or what, what are the uh, foci of determination? What, what, what is it that I'm choosing this kind of presentation of Dharma, or this tradition, or that... Uh, picture of the Dharma, that model, that conceptual framework over another one. The, the most salient features there are actually the worldview and the human view. So I've, I've mentioned this before. In a way, when we choose a certain Dharma, choose a certain image of awakening, we're actually choosing a certain view of human beinghood, humanity. So all this comes into it, and and we need to acknowledge it. If we consider, for example, um, four different logoi, or models, if you like, or beliefs about the world, uh, and implicit views about the world is also views about what is real. So ontology, can't can't get rid of it, can't throw metaphysics out, cannot burn it up so that it it disappears and is gone once and for all. The metaphysics will come back, and it's uh, central and basic, in fact. So if we compare, as if four four, uh, views, four beliefs, four models, uh, four... Logoi, really, of, of, of the world, pictures of the world, and implicit in that, pictures of uh, what is real. And then see how that uh, each of them 
in a way, orients the one who subscribes to that view of, of the world, that view, that cosmology and that ontology. Each one of those orients the practitioner in, in a particular way and shapes the Dharma in a particular way relative to that worldview. So, for example, if we believe the kind of um, what I was calling physicalism or materialism view, in other words, there is really only matter. And uh, uh, there is this you know, movement of particles, uh, essentially purposeless, etc., but uh, somehow they have developed consciousness with all its complexity, etc. But really, what's there? Uh, consciousness is an epiphenomenon of matter, and consciousness at root is just the movement of matter, uh, of particles in, in neurology. And it's just a matter of time until we figure that out, how that works. Um, but that view, there is only matter. Then the whole Dharma, as one view, the whole Dharma that comes out of that is what we might call a kind of secular existentialist view of Dharma. That's the real condition of things. There is only matter. There is any sense of depth is in a way an illusion, of dimensionality is in a way illusion. Certainly divinity and all that. All that. And my freedom is really to be the concepts of suffering and freedom are to be are framed and by that worldview, by that physicalist worldview, and my orientation then must be framed from that. The primary thing that I relate to is this strange existential situation uh, that I'm in and, and uh, um, needing to... Uh, needing to find some okayness with that. So that gives a whole picture of the Dharma, a whole basis and picture and limitation and trajectory and orientation of a Dharma. Compare... Now, that might be a very conscious view or it might be an unconscious view. Okay, But it still will operate to shape and, and um, uh, inform what Dharma uh, one gravitates towards. Consider a second view that, in fact, only the unfabricated, that which is wholly transcendent to not just to matter but to all perception and all experience, really in the conventional sense, um, only the unfabricated is real and good and perhaps sacred. Um, then this life has very little inherent value other than as a stepping stone to getting out of this life. And that's, uh, in some sub-traditions of the Dharma, it's a very common view. It's uh, quite popular, as is the first one that I mentioned uh, in, in uh, these days. But then you can hear how that then orients, uh, shapes, orients, constrains, limits, sets up a whole dharma 
and what the situation is we're addressing and what we're trying to get to. What's, what do we mean by suffering and what suffering is basically being born into this. Suffering is the world of phenomenal experience. It, life is suffering. And the freedom from suffering is to get out of it. Realize the unfabricated so thoroughly that one is not born again. So to speak, it's the wrong metaphor, but one dissolves into the unfabricated, uh, and that's the end of it. And the end of dukkha. The end of rebirth. Uh, so, again, there's a worldview uh, and, and an ontological view about what's real and about uh, wh- what the world is and its ontological status and also what's valuable there relative to that, and that shapes the whole dharma and direction. A third view. All manifestation is equally one and divine. Uh, It's all the same divine substance. It's all uh, the play of divine uh, awareness. It's all um, the the play of uh, consciousness, lila play of consciousness, or it's all love, or it's all whatever it is. And how does the Dharma then, uh, what kind of Dharma gets built up around that worldview? Again, what's our predicament? Our predicament is just not realizing that. We just don't realize that it's all one. We think we're separate, we think things are separate. Uh, When we realize it's all one, that's the end of suffering. And nothing is more or less divine than the other. Nothing in particular is special because of uh, its particularities and what it is and its uniqueness. It's only special and only really valuable because of the uh, substantial equality that uh, an essence that it shares with everything else. A fourth one would be more in line with the soul-making view. So those first, those first three are actually quite popular. And again, I don't know how much you've done this. Talk to people after retreats, um, and uh, what, what actually, uh, or talk to Dharma friends or people. What actually is their view underpinning, underpinning the whole Dharma and therefore shaping it? So the first three are really quite common. The fourth is more in line with. Um, what we might call the soul-making dharma, or more uh, um, congruent with the soul-making dharma, and perhaps less less popular, I would say, in the wider world of in the wider tradition of contemporary dharma. But in that view, all manifestation is divine, but not just, not only because it shares a universal divine essence. So there is that. There is the place for that perception and that kind of liberation and that kind of beauty and that kind of eros for that universal divine essence or essences, plural. I've talked about this a lot before in the soul-making dharma. But not only because of that. All manifestation is divine, but each um, thing's particularities are divine and necessary to the becoming of the divine the manifestation in time of the divine, or the Buddha nature, if you prefer. So, rather than, if you like, equalizing, and therefore, in a sense, 
obfuscating and ignoring the particularities of the things of the world and of ourselves. Uh, each particularity is divine and divinely necessary or necessary to the divine, to the process of the divine, including your dukkha, including your foibles, including your madnesses. How many things are there? Well, potentially infinite. Why? Because uh, when the soul-making dynamic uh, gets going, when, when the eros psychologos dynamic um, is ignited, it will create and discover more and more aspects of things, more and more objects of eros. So there aren't a predetermined amount of objects or phenomena in the universe or in ourselves or even in this uh, in this particular object that I'm looking at. There's an infinite and endlessly, potentially endlessly growing amount. So you can, again, and we've talked a lot about this, what does that view do? Uh, what does that logos do uh, to the sense of the Dharma? What my job is, what my orientation is, what I'm moving from and towards. What is suffering then? How is suffering defined, what is its scope and what is awakening and what is that uh, the scope of awakening and where it's leading so just for an example there we could we could probably list more but four logoi or models or beliefs about the world or cosmologies if you like and uh, implicit in that cosmology uh, is, is uh, for ontological views about what's real. So, for example, only unfabricated is really real. Everything else is kind of illusion in the second one. All this phenomenal world is, is illusion. Sabamidam mayam, the Buddha said. All this is illusion. Ah... Uh, so, but these four logoi then bring four orientations, four, if you like, uh, ideas of, of jobs and, and uh, work to do and scope and what the path is, four dharmas, essentially, and implicit in, in each dharma is a kind of awakening. So how influential, what are we really choosing? I've made this point before in those talks of what is awakening, I think they were called. Um, what are we really choosing when we choose a certain vision of awakening? Are we not both influenced by, but also choosing, really, as perhaps primary, a certain model uh, or belief or conceptual framework, idea of the world and of human beings? But the, the, again, if, we, if we're thinking really about what shapes a tradition, these different logoi of, of world and reality, different cosmology, different ontology, will shape very different dharma, dharma trajectories, very different dharmas, essentially. And what is it that, that predisposes us, or why do we choose one model, one idea, one belief of... Uh, about the world and about ontology over another. What's going on there? There's all kind. Of, there's so many. It's so basic in its implications. So basic in the way it kind of uh, c 
creates divergent paths with all kinds of implications. I was talking um, a little while ago, uh, just a sort of chance conversation, I bumped into someone who was um, studying uh, philosophy and had also been studying, I think, a couple of Jewish philosophers. Um, I can't remember if it was Maimonides or Spinoza he was talking about, I, I don't know. Um, and so we were having a conversation and, and he was a little bit familiar with the uh, teachings about the imaginal and soul-making and was reading his philosophy and he, if I understood him, he seemed to be saying that someone, I can't remember if it was Maimonides or Spinoza or Abraham Abu Lafia, I, I can't remember, regarded images um, in a similar way as this person did as at best transitional objects so that's a phrase from D.N. Winnicott the, the psychologist and child psychologist so transitional object is something like a, a blanket or a teddy bear that the, the, the child supposedly uses to um, uh, kind of on, in the process of weaning themselves uh, towards more independence from the mother, towards more autonomy, towards more self-sense, towards healthier relationships, um, and in that process invest the transitional object, the teddy bear or whatever it is, with a kind of imaginary uh, full beinghood, personhood, and then gradually weans themselves off the need for that imagination. So he regarded images as, at best, transitional objects, which are eventually kind of let go of to to meet God directly, to know God directly, or to meet God's intellect, God's active intellect uh, directly. And that's uh, active intellect is is just a a term, I think it originated with Aristotle, but became quite influential. But the point is really that images are just stepping stones. Some people will need them as stepping stones for a kind of imageless, transcendent, direct uh, participation or melting into the wordless, unconceptual, uh, non-representational, unformed uh, sense of God. Uh, So whether you call that unfabricated or the active intellect or whatever different versions, it doesn't matter. So I wasn't entirely surprised to hear this kind of thing because that would again be quite common as as a way of um, viewing these things. Uh, It's also in some times the way Zogchen is related to it's, uh, so we, we realize, oh, there's all these divinities and deities and visualization practices, and that's all. A lot of people want to kind of, you know, bypass that or skip it over or view it as a transition, a stepping stone to actually the real deal in Zogchen, which is the nature of mind, which is ends up tending to be this kind of vastness of awareness, etc. And that's the real McCoy. The deity business is probably just some cultural accretions from the Tibetans, etc., backward, etc. We don't really need that. We we want to go for the pith, the essence, the real high deal. But actually, if you read closely Dzogchen teachers, I'm thinking of Nipam Rinpoche and um, others, 
the the nature of mind and the sort of more formalist teachings are just actually on their way to an even greater liberation which sees divinities everywhere and sees all things as divinities and does not relinquish the formed uh, in favour uh, of the formless. And as I've stressed in other passages in different traditions and Ibn Arabi and others um, in the Islamic tradition and certainly in Buddhist Tantra, can it not also be the other way round than this person was uh, construing? Can it not be that knowing the unfabricated, for example, knowing the formless, knowing the transcendent, that which uh, involves no fabrication of image or perception, can in fact open the door for some people um, to uh, to imaginal practice. Or certainly understanding, uh, if the understanding of emptiness deepens uh, far enough, it provides the legitimization for some people for imaginal practice. And we've talked about this in uh, several talks over, the, over recent years. But you can hear in this person presenting it like that, and, and it does, I think, have roots in, for example, Abraham Abu Lafia, the Jewish uh, Kabbalistic mystic, who very much thought that way about letting go of images uh, to be able to participate in the active intellect of God. Uh, very influenced by Aristotle, and you, you get it in different traditions. So there is that spin on it. But it... Uh, this person's idea then, um, or construal, presupposes a certain aim of, uh, in this case, Buddha Dharma, or in, or Judaism, or whatever. It presupposes that the aim is to reach the unfabricated, and all else is either a hindrance uh, or something to, that's a stepping stone. In his case, and that's how he was viewing imaginal work as just a they're transitional objects. They can help you get close to God, but the real deal is the, is the unformed, no image. So it presupposes a certain aim of, of Buddha Dharma or, or Jewish mystical practice or whatever. And it presupposes or it assumes a limited nature of what images are. And it presupposes a certain, if you like, psychology or makeup of the soul. So all these views can't help shape and orient us and, and create a kind of dharma and then, and then really create different, uh, if you like, sub-traditions or maybe actually divergent traditions that the differences, as I point out, become too different, maybe, maybe not, uh, become too different from each other to really feel like they cohere in one tradition. There's, uh, and I can't remember who, who I was listening to or talking to, um, but again, it's not that uncommon these days. Um, and certain philosophers, I don't know, maybe Thomas Metzinger, I'm not that familiar with his work directly, but maybe others. Um, but I was talking to you, or hearing from a practitioner, uh, or reading something that uh, their construal of what is really happening in awakening and talk about Nibbana, or stream entry, or Arahantship, or liberation, or whatever, what's really happening is a neurological change in the brain. 
and maybe the brain and the whole neuronal system and the whole body. That's what's really happening. That's what really one is affecting through practice, through diligent practice. One's uh, rewiring or retraining uh, something, the, the neurons. And that neurological change short circuits, uh, if we can use that phrase, kind of short circuits, circuits the neural networks that have up to then been perceiving a separate self. So here's, here's a view then. You can hear how much, again, is wrapped up and implied by such a view. Uh, the experiential effect of that kind of neuronal change uh, that comes from practice is the collapse or non-arising of a certain, um, well, this person was saying of the self or the self-sense, I would say of a certain range of self-sense, um, and uh, there's the ensuing kind of relative ease and peace and relative, I would say, liberation that that brings. But really, in that view, really, there was only a neural network processing sense data in a way that produced the illusion of self. So you can hear how much is, again, wrapped up, how much is implied, and what, uh, what, what directions come out of that. So my question, or one question I have here, is uh, is about the anthropological and cosmological view that is either implicitly or explicitly uh, wrapped up or, or, or stated um, along with the experience and along with the teaching of that kind of view of what's happening in awakening and what awakening is. And my question is, what effects will that kind of anthropological and cosmological view have in terms of uh, the, the, the ethos, the flavor of being, the range of being, the sense of um, meaningfulness or the possibility of a sense of meaningfulness, of, of, of the sense of beauty, senses of beauty, of um, eros, of soul-making. What does it do to all those possibilities? So what is the result, again, <clears throat> and a person might be doing uh, relatively, at some levels, similarish practices, but they're all under, undergirded by, uh, again, certain anthropological, cosmological views. In this case, a kind of um, physicalist, um, neurological view, neurologically based anthropology uh, and cosmology. What kind of awakening does that give rise to? What kind of human being does that give rise to? What kind of possibilities does it open? What kind of possibilities does it close? I might also point out um, that what is wrapped up in that is, I would say, a, a more limited view of what emptiness is and what realization involves. So there is a in this in that view that I just presented. There is a basic reality which is material, which is physical, n neuronal. There is a neuronal network. It can either work like this or it can work like that. 
it works like this, you get certain suffering, the self-illusion. If it works like that, you're, you don't, that, that um, self-illusion is no longer in the program. The software has changed. But the basic reality is the neurons exist, the neural network exists, the biological functioning exists, etc. And the only real uh, scope of what's seen as empty is the self. The illusion of the self, and it's that that goes. Versus a view of emptiness that I I would prefer and uh, find much more interesting, exciting, much more challenging, more radical, deep, wide, etc. That everything is empty. Neurons, matter, process, time. You've heard me say that many times, read about it. So, there's two things there. What is the scope uh, of the emptiness view? And is it uh, as deep and as thorough as, as it might be? And what is the ethos that is implied both as a basis but also as a result um, in that kind of view? kind of was the ethos of the awakening of the soul that comes out of such a view. So if we linger a little bit, let's linger a little bit on this whole question of um, the, the whole fact, actually, uh, that there are, if we look at Buddha Dharma, we can notice and someone interested in these things should notice um, quite rapidly that there are uh, quite a few different versions of what emptiness means. So everyone's using the same word, uh, mostly emptiness or etc. And and the range of what's uh, implied, wrapped up uh, in in that term. Is is varies hugely. So it's certainly true in in the Tibetan traditions. If you even just think about the four main Tibetan lineages and compare, say, the Nyingma or the um, Kagyu traditions with, say, the Geluk tradition. The Geluk tradition was founded by Tsongkhapa in the I think 14th century, if I remember, 14th 15th century, and I don't quite know the background but they put a great emphasis on preserving the uh, reality of conventional perceptions. So preserving uh, conventional reality. And I think the re- part of the reason for that was because Tsongkhapa looked around him at the time in Tibet and saw a lot of people using the language of emptiness as a kind of excuse to justify uh, behavior that wasn't ethical. So perhaps his thinking and his solution or, or his per- perceived need there was to lean more towards not uh, espousing a view that conventional appearances were in fact thoroughly empty. So you get a strange, to me, strange teaching in the Geluk tradition, which says um, the this thing, whatever it is, is is empty of inherent existence. It's not empty of itself. And there's a lot of debate that came out of that that mostly Westerners have not have not really come across because they're sort of spared 
that for whatever reasons. Um, uh, but but it's there in the hundreds of years of tradition, quite sort of strong argument from different uh, teachers. Certainly Mipam Rinpoche was very um, keen to point out the problems with that view and um, the different karmapas, etc. Uh, but that would be, that's one version of emptiness that really, it's almost like, you say things are empty, but it almost, uh, the danger in preserving the reality of conventional appearances and, and insisting that they're not empty, uh, conventional reality is not empty, is that emptiness just becomes, it has no effect. It's a sort of just a kind of intellectual thing, but everything remains the same. That's one of the dangers. Um, then uh, you get different views of emptiness again, uh, where um, again the, th- the thrust or the aim, and often it's not made explicit, seems to be a kind of um, what would you say a kind of uh, crusade against uh, sacredness, a crusade against. Um, what might be something that we might call spiritual. And so, again, what's happening in that choice of what emptiness means? Emptiness means don't get your hopes up. Emptiness means there is nothing sacred. Emptiness means there's nothing special. Emptiness uh, means that the self with a big S is an illusion. Uh, Soul is an illusion, etc. God is almost certainly an illusion, anything like that. And that view of emptiness and that scope of emptiness, again, will it uses a lot of the same language. And a lot, there's a lot of overlap, but it, it's it's got a certain purpose and it's got a certain prescribed range and intent and scope to it and goal to it and vision of what awakening is. And in that, as I've pointed out, it also ends up casting the self in a certain light. So again, if if I view the reality of things is this existent this difficult existential situation. We are thrown into this world of purposeless uh, matter in an inexplicable way, in an inexplicable universe uh, of of um, harsh impermanence and meaninglessness. Then to uh, to see that in, as the reality, and then we have to find a way to face up to that reality and be okay with it, is also casting the self as a kind of existentialist hero. So the whole theatre of things, but it's not recognised as theatre, because there's presumed this is the reality. But there's a kind of theatre, and one has cast oneself as practitioner, and in my brave honesty I can face up to this reality which other people perhaps can't don't have the courage to face up to this grim uh, difficult uh, existential meaninglessness and limitation of our existence our finitude etc as human beings but there's there's also a construing and a casting of the self in relation to something as a, a real self-view in relation to a real reality. That's also part of what one is choosing. There are views um, of emptiness that are just about 
simplifying things. Emptiness is, um, is, is really just the fact that all there is as processes. There is no um, mystery or depth to the whole notion of emptiness. It's just the fact that there are processes. There are atomic processes. There are neurological processes. There are, if you like, mental processes that happen in time. This moment of consciousness, that moment of consciousness, that moment of Aidna, etc. And they're chained together in cause and effect, etc. And our job is to see that's just a process. Don't make a big deal of anything. Don't make a big deal about the self. Don't make a big deal of anything else. Just this process is kind of atomizing and stripping down. Some people will choose a version of emptiness um, that is um, what is ba- based on uh, what they can tolerate in terms of the fear that might come up for them. So, so they might hear about radical emptiness, that everything is empty. There's not even atoms, there's not even a process, there's not even time, there's not even space. Not just um, self is there as a kind of process in time. But a person might land on that view for, for lots of different reasons, one of which might be fear. When I hear or read about an emptiness that's even deeper than that, saying, well, there's not even a process, then the ground feels like it goes, just hearing that, the ground seems to go from under my feet and, and I'm afraid. I don't like that. So sometimes a person is choosing emptiness or, or a version of emptiness. And again, when I choose a version of emptiness, then my path, my tradition or sub-tradition will come out of that. And it might be based on fear. Sometimes um, it might be the case that um, partly one's uh, one is committed or invested, committed to or invested in um, one version of emptiness over another and wants that to be the truth of emptiness. Uh, partly, might be partly based or conditioned by one's experience. Um, there's maybe very little um, mystical experience or one is afraid of those kinds of openings and pulls back from them in meditation Um, or uh, they're just very rare those experiences and actually what's happening there is a movement of well I don't want to think that I'm a failure I don't want to think that there is some experience that I uh, perhaps other people have had but I maybe after years or decades of meditating, I've never had. And so the fear of seeing oneself as a failure actually is what conditions why one is committed to or invested in or or wants this version of emptiness to be true over that version. So partly it's based on what it delivers in terms of the possibilities, um, ranges and limits on... uh, on the, the worldview. Partly it's more to do with self, the self view that's already existing, or fear of a self view, or wanting to cast the self in a certain way, or it's, it's a view on what uh, a 
commitment to a certain view of emptiness because of what we want, um, because of what we gravitate towards in terms of the possible possible ranges of self-view that we want to open them up and and experience and a sense of the cosmos and a sense perhaps of sacredness and divinity. And someone also, conversely, ego might might slip in because they might feel like, well, I've I've realized emptiness and there's nothing for me more to realize there. So my version is it and I consider myself an arahant, etc. I already know there's nothing further for me there. It's an arahant stock phrase. And so one just is invested for a slightly different ego reason in in whatever, uh, wherever one has reached in terms of a view and understanding of emptiness. That's also possible. And uh, and then there's the view that you know I w- I would favour uh, the, the kind of wrapped up in the soul making dharma view, um, where again what what's what's the leaning there? What's uh, my inclination? What's my personal soul style? What's um, what is it that I wish for? What does my soul long for? Yes, to open up the, the possibilities of self, to open up the possibilities of experience. Huge range is what I want. To open up the possibilities of sacredness, to open up the possibilities of how I can sense and conceive of the cosmos. I want my emptiness to be integrated into those kind of possibilities, to support those kinds of possibilities. If we um, actually just linger a little bit more with this emptiness business and um, uh, yeah, just point a few more things out in relation to, to the different views and, and soul-making, Dharma's relationship with emptiness and the imaginal practice relationship with emptiness. So there are, as I said, there's many different kinds or interpretations of emptiness despite the same word um, in, in the Buddhist tradition. Some, as I said, are um, intended um, from and in the direction of a kind of anti-sacredness. Uh, then in those, as, as I was pointing out, I'm just repeating now, in those uh, construals, um, then one's existential plight um, and material existence is real, and anything else is not. And, and there's a kind of anti-spiritual agenda there. As I've um, pointed out elsewhere, I would say that for many people, the the very hearing about emptiness is actually already wrapped up with mystery and sacredness, and it's 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 not just it's not only a a strategy or tool or concept or set of practices that that liberate, um, that reduce suffering. Certainly it's that. But people love to hear about emptiness and, and they're drawn to explore it because of the, the mystery and the sacredness. And I, I would say, or my leaning and, and favourite, my, uh, my inclination there is to say that um, this is part of what we're wanting 
from emptiness. And I would say part of what comes when we um, explore emptiness deeply, as I've pointed out before, there is, uh, it's not just what we desire, it's also what the emptiness delivers at a very deep level. Um, some, as I was saying, it's quite common, this process view. Um, so for some people, emptiness involves, their view of their understanding of emptiness involves this, um, actually, a, a certain reification of something or other. For example, the aggregates, for example, time, and for example, the process of aggregates in time. That would be a very common one. The self's not real, but what is real is this process of aggregates in time. Um, but again then, emptiness, just as in the kind of secular existentialist version, um, the, 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 the view of emptiness and the understanding of emptiness actually Im- implies certain things are still real. And it also implies that um, images are not real. The imaginal is not real and, and not, not valuable because only this process of aggregates which we can arrive at and perceive with a kind of, if we just train the bare attention, we'll see that's all there is. There's just aggregates. That's, that's the view there. Therefore, the imaginal is not real because it's not that atomistic process. Um, the options, are, certainly for the imaginal, um, and imaginal perception are, are not opened up, therefore. Only the self is impermanent. The phenomenal world is not. And there's not really this possibility of um, sensing the soul, of cosmopoesis. There's not really the possibility of legitimizing that through that through that version of emptiness. It absolutely does not legitimize it. Because what is true, it's atomistic process in time. Images and all that is just papancha in that view. What's also implicitly true in 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 that view is that um, impermanence is real, and so sometimes emptiness comes almost to be synonymous with impermanence. But again, in the view that I would favour, uh, the understanding of emptiness goes deeper than impermanence. So yes, definitely things are impermanent, but actually, as Nagarjuna and others have stressed, um, things are neither impermanent nor permanent. They are empty. Time is empty. Thing is empty. Impermanence is not the ultimate truth. Permanence is not an ultimate truth. And when we, I think, when we really go deep into practice, really working with the teachings and the practices around clinging and subtle clinging and letting go of subtler and subtler levels of clinging, and seeing how that's tied into unfabricating and how that allows an unfabricating of the whole realm of perception, we actually see no clinging, no impermanence. No clinging, no impermanence. Impermanence is not an ultimate truth. Without clinging, there there is no impermanence, because there's no thing at all. There's no... Flow. You can't talk about flow or process. You can't talk about sense data. You can't talk about atoms of whether they're material atoms or mental atoms moments. There's no time. There's no present moment. So again, very different versions of what emptiness means with hugely divergent implications and about for what they open up 
and, and what they call us to and what they what they limit or not. As I said, emptiness in, in, in the way that I would um, favour understanding it and conceiving of it, exploring it and presenting it, it um, it will open up sensing the soul. As I go as I perceive the world more through the lens of emptiness come out of that a little bit, then inevitably, if, if the emptiness understanding is deep enough, the world becomes sacred, and all kinds of possibilities for sensing the soul are, are opened. Um, emptiness also, um, in, in the way that I would conceive it, uh, it helps support the stance of the imaginal middle way. So, um, crucial to uh, the, f- the fully imaginal uh, experience, the, the opening of the fully imaginal. So imaginal perceptions are neither real nor not real. They're, they're like theatre. And I've said before, though the ontological status of images and conventional, what we might call conventional worldly perceptions, is, is um, surely different. They're both thoroughly empty at a deep level. There's something about deep insight into emptiness that just, for, for many people, not for everyone, helps support that stance of the imaginal middle way. Um, in our view as well, the understanding of emptiness actually legitimizes, for some people, legitimizes imaginal practice and sensing the soul. I mean, it was it was my way, and as I've shared before, I wasn't particularly drawn to images. I didn't have a lot of images. Um, it had been, if you like, practiced out of me over the years. Um, but uh, because uh, there's no uh, comparison of an image to something that's supposedly real, the, Im- the, the ontological status of the imaginal doesn't get denigrated because... If I've seen the emptiness of everything, there's nothing that I can harbour as a, oh, yeah, but that's not real, but this is real. So in that sense, um, there's no reality or pure perception that I can compare an imaginal perception to. As I said, some people will need that deep emptiness to really purge themselves or divest themselves of that lingering um, belief that's fundamental to, to avijja, to ignorance, that there is something real, whatever that something is, and that we can know that. Some people don't need it, as I said, because they're, as I've said before, because they're already in an artistic, poetic relationship, so to speak, with existence and perception. Or the, their kind of reading and research into modern, some modern philosophy kind of legitimizes it, etc., Maybe some from their research into modern physics. Just in while we're on the subject, and again I've said this before as well, but the it's also true that the influence can go the other way, the support can go the other way. That imaginal practice, when repeated and over time, can actually bring insight into emptiness, can open the insights into emptiness. And there are a few people, definitely more than a few, whom the, the directionality of support is more that way. That with the coming and going of 
you know, all these images, many of which are kind of surprising, uh, one begins to question the reality of this or that view of the self, for example. I've um, said before, uh, again, just talking about emptiness and its relationship or place in the whole practice of soul-making. And it will have a different place for different people, um, as mentioned. So I've said, you know, careful not to be sloppy or lazy with the understanding of emptiness. There's a way it can be a bit glib and easy rather than, for me, what's actually really quite sophisticated and subtle and profound um, understanding. That the view um, of deep emptiness is really radical in the sense of really the absolute cuts to the root of, of all things, and wide, comprehensive. So all that is possible is something that's really quite a journey, as I said when we talked um, in this series on, on about emptiness. Um, there is the, in the possibility for some people to explore uh, the practices and understandings of emptiness in, in ways that are enormously sophisticated and subtle, go very deep and very, very wide. And at the same time, perhaps here's another tension, I acknowledge too that we uh, each perhaps have a personal relationship with emptiness, if you like, um, and with epistemology, as we mentioned. Epistemology is personal, I said in the talk on epistemology. And, and epistemology of emptiness is also personal. So, on the one hand, don't be sloppy, don't be lazy. Um, there's a possibility of really, really refined, careful understanding with regard to emptiness. And at the same time, acknowledge that there's different personalities here, different soul styles, different soul needs, and uh, as I said, personal relationships with emptiness, personal relationships with epistemology, or personal epistemologies almost to a certain extent. So you can hear just how complex all this is. Certainly complex if we're, again, thinking about what's in this pot that we call tradition, what contributes to a tradition, to our sense, or to anyone's sense of what the Dharma is. What are the rival or complete competing uh, directional pulls, the assumptions, the inclinations, the cultural factors, the personal factors? And you can hear when we talk about, for example, I said the personal inclinations, just how much um, care, care with regard to honesty and just awareness is asked for. To be aware, to be conscious uh, and honest about our wishes, our desires, our motivations for this or that version of say, this portion of the Dharma or the whole Dharma or the trajectory or the, the tradition, etc. Just it's, it's, I think it's asking us to admit this, to be honest, to be, to be careful, to open things up and, and to really be aware. So what can happen, I can't remember if I said this, but to me well, this is so important, I realise I'm repeating in this talk some things I've said before, but I, th- I think this is uh, really important, so it, this, may, this may be a repeat, but 
when we, when we, again, when we look in, in, in the Dharma culture, sometimes it's hard to step out of it and actually see what's going on when you're in something, when you're in a suit. But certain words and ideas, so for example, liberation, awakening, freedom, depth, um, they're actually uh, quite vague in their meaning to a practitioner who might be hearing them a lot and actually start using them a lot and orienting to them a lot. So they get spoken by authorities in Dharma talks and writings, etc., freedom, liberation, awakening, depth, whatever other words, um, through authorities and through repetition from the teachers um, in, uh, or from the practitioner themselves. And actually... Um, aided by their vagueness, supported by their vagueness, they become charged for the practitioner in, in the context of the Dharma, doing retreats, hearing this language, repeating it for oneself. They become charged, they become orientation points, and um, that's set up as goals, in other words, orientation points as goals. But, again, it's not... If you, if you actually ask them exactly what do you mean by them, Exactly what do you mean by liberation, awakening, depth, freedom? One question. And second question, is that what you really want the most? Freedom from suffering. So it can get so much repeated. We hear it so much. We repeat it ourselves so much. The very vagueness of the idea kind of almost contributes to a kind of... uh, lack of clarity, lack of full clarity and full honesty about, hold on, is this what I really want? And what do I actually even mean by that? And so for some people, as I've pointed out before, it may be that um, it's actually, for example, beauty that they have longed for in their practice that has kept them on the path all these years. It's a love of beauty. It's eros for beauty. It may be the beauty of goodness, of uh, the, the, the good heart, the profoundly good heart. It may be the beauty of uh, truth, uh, for sure. But never, it's never only freedom from suffering. Not for someone who really loves the path. Can I see this? Can I admit it? Can I see that there's not a problem with it? Can I see that it's right? person may, it's probably quite common, that a person actually, when they, if they really are able to kind of, to, uh, what's the word, pull aside the veils and actually scrutinize, well, hold on, what's going on here with all these words buzzing around, all this charge, all this repetition, they, they may feel that what they want, for example, beauty, they long for beauty, they're devoted to beauty more than they're devoted to the freedom of suffering or from reducing their suffering much further. Sure, at times they want less suffering when the suffering kind of coalesces in certain ways. But actually it's something else. What if, is there the possibility then of seeing oneself as a disciple of beauty? If we use that phrase. Not primarily as a seeker of liberation uh, from, or let alone any reduction in suffering. But because that's the paradigm, and that's what gets repeated, liberation from suffering, which can sometimes just mean reduce suffering, 
that's how one tends to think of what one's doing and what one repeats to oneself and to others, etc. What, what if you actually... Is there, does it make sense to break out of that? Or just even experiment with it? Well, if I just re, relabel myself, reconceive myself as a practitioner and, and on the path. I'm a disciple to beauty. I'm devoted to beauty. My eros, my longing is for beauty. What, what would that do? So honesty and uh, consciousness uh, is asked for here. And in acknowledging this um, this need for uh, honesty and self-awareness, and in acknowledging the inevitability of the way, let's say, different soul styles or different soul desires and inclinations come in to a person's perception of the Dharma, their choice of a Dharma, a tradition, etc., and their contribution to it. Um, In acknowledging all that, it also brings up the whole question, uh, which I just very briefly touched on or mentioned um, in in the first, very start of the first part of the talk, the whole kind of... um, relationship to and consideration of autonomy and authority. So um, if we again if we if we admit and are honest that well I actually desire this, for example, I, I actually what I really long for is beauty. And sometimes when push comes to show I'll choose the beauty over a reduction in suffering. Or actually, that's really what I'm after, or whatever. Um, then that invites this question about autonomy and authority. Am I going to trust that desire over and above the, the, the language that is promulgated, the common language, what the teacher is saying, etc., what I read? So this that's a part of the question of autonomy and authority or authorities. But there are other aspects. Um, Do I, within a tradition, what is uh, my relationship with with authorities in terms of how much can I have my own investigations, my own lines of investigation, my own uh, criteria for what satisfies me in my investigations? And sometimes a person um, ends up asking um, a certain question of either a teacher or, or a number of different teachers um, over and over, and sometimes for years, but there's not much movement there. What's happening? They have, sometimes what, what happens is they have several authorities. They're, they're putting all the authority, they're giving all the authority to those um, authorities, those teachers, and then they can't decide between them. Because this person says this, but that person says that. Or I read here, but I read over there. How, how, how will you resolve that question, whatever it is? could be a question about any aspect of Dharma. How will you know? When will you be satisfied in that question? How much are you actually living that question in terms of uh, tailoring and shaping and directing your practice to go in, in to the depths of that question so that that question can be opened up and answered. 
or or is it just I'm just practicing how I usually practice, but I'm asking these questions to different authorities and getting contradictory answers. So this whole autonomy of investigation in in uh, practice, in experience, uh, meditative experience, in thinking, in um, uh, reading and listening, etc. Um, on and again, there's a tension here because on the sometimes what so sometimes what happens is a person has given all the authority to other people, and they're not, if you like, living their own questions and self-determining. There's not enough autonomy in their own investigations, their own inquiry. So ask for a lot. You know what what is the, what is involved in a, a really powerful investigation for a human being? What is what's involved in the art of inquiry? for oneself, so that one knows, so that one, uh, it doesn't matter what this person says, because I have satisfied myself, I've seen for myself, I've understood for myself, I've made sense of it myself, questioned for myself in a, in a real, alive way. Sometimes what happens is is uh, the other side of, of, of the spectrum. A person has a certain experience and decides that, oh well, um, I've reached the end. So whatever you're saying, Rob, or whatever this other teacher is saying, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true because I've seen this uh, a certain experience. So, for example, a certain level of um, unfabricating where the personality goes just very quiet, but the world just feels very vivid and bright, and it seems like I'm just, I'm the, the sense of the understanding and the, the sense that. Of that, of that experiences, and just experiencing things as they are without the self. And one stops there, and one has decided, based on that experience, that that's the end of it. That's the understanding of emptiness. Anyone who says other stuff is just just can't be right. All this business about complete unfabrication or cessation or or whatever. To me, that would be a bit like, I don't know, journeying, taking a car to the south of England and going to, I don't know, somewhere like Dover, the cliffs of Dover, where there's the sea, and just deciding, right, that's it, that's the end of the land, that's the end of terrestrial earth. There is no more land after here. Versus getting in a boat, going across and seeing, after a little paddling, you'll get to France. And, um, as long as you point in the right direction, um, and so, oh, there is more land. There is a deeper unfabricating than what I've experienced. So, so that the question of how much am I am I over uh, concluding? Am I am I concluding my investigation too early? Am I over trusting my experience, even though that experience might be limited, and I'm deciding it's ultimate? There's that phrase from the Dzogchen tradition: "Trust your experience, but keep refining your view." So yes, if that kind of relative unfabricating where personality goes very quiet and the world just opens up very vividly, not much thought, etc. It's great. Trust that experience. It's a, in, in my 
map. It, it would be it's a relative. It's a relative unfabricating. But keep refining the view. Keep refining the practice. Keep refining your understanding of what's happening there. How do I frame that experience? Is there more that can be unfabricated? What would that be? How would I get there? And also, you know, part of the art of inquiry is also um, a kind of, uh, what would you say, structural awareness of, of the levels of ideas. So how things kind of fit together. How conceptual frameworks fit together. What's a kind of relatively... Um, small fry contention or quibbling. I think I mentioned this before as well, so forgive me if there's a lot of repeat um, to people arguing whether there were two or three uh, types of Vedana. Okay, you can see it both ways. Does it really matter? Um, and sometimes not uh, kind of recognizing what are the more significant levels of ideas. Sometimes people hearing about the ways of looking paradigm, for example, that whole conceptual framework, and it just not registering as how radical and uh, uh, important in its implications such an idea is. It's a it's a, a kind of meta level idea that just doesn't register. Just like yeah, sure, you can look at things in different ways. One hasn't grasped its its structural place. One hasn't grasped the edifice of ideas, how ideas are actually, um, one can create a hierarchy of ideas. What's more or less significant? What's a kind of real basis, a real, um, uh, as I said, meta idea or pan idea? And what's a, just a little, it's just a little uh, kind of relatively insignificant um, piece in, a, in the structure and the conceptual framework of a particular dharma. So that's related to also this, I mentioned, I can't remember in what talk, um, developing uh, a nose for what's significant and what's not. Actually, this strand of investigation, this piece, this understanding, this discernment, that's actually significant. This one is not so important. So there's a lot involved in what I would call um, artful inquiry or the art of inquiry. And all this is necessary if I'm going to have a degree of autonomy in relationship to whatever authorities exist in a tradition. So important. And again, this question of the tension between autonomy, that we need a necessary or healthy, or I'll put it as a question, does a tradition need uh, a degree of healthy autonomy for its uh, for its members, for its sangha, the individuals, and does it need an authority, and what's the uh, balance of those, what's the tension that's, uh, what's the range of tension there that's necessary to a healthy, uh, alive tradition. We see in all this, I've, I've touched on this, but I want to draw this point out. So there's a lot of, lot of things being said. Um, just how views about the world and views about the human being, what we might call cosmologies and anthropologies, views about the cosmos 
and beliefs about the cosmos, pictures of the cosmos, pictures, uh, models, beliefs, views about what a human being is and what constitutes a human being, they are not irrelevant. So it can be um, fairly popular to say, ah, the Buddha was a genius because he just sidelined um, the whole cosmology that was around at the time. And, and he took the teaching and made it purely psychological and therefore universal and not dependent on some kind of cultural, uh, cultural accretion or cultural fashion of a view of cosmology and anthropology. But you start to see when you consider all these things, I think, when you consider these things that I've said, that actually, that's not irrelevant at all. Those views of cosmology and anthropology may be much more primary, and may be much more primary in their significance and their determination of what the Dharma is. What is the Buddha Dharma? What is the tradition that we believe is the real Buddha Dharma or that we choose? And, and as I said, what then, as part of what is the Dharma, is what is our notion, what is our sense, what is our image of awakening? then views of cosmology and anthropology are not at all irrelevant. They're extremely significant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.